Hello, Nancy. Hi, Shane. Uh, so I don't, we, I rack my brain for some like cute introduction. I don't have anything today, but we do have something to talk about. Today we're talking in some part about ice cores, right? Yep, which are a very thing that people do in science. Is retrieve them. Yes. They don't. They don't create ice cores. No, they... no. It's a big thing though in climate science. I don't know if many people know that, but a lot of the stuff that we know about past climate is through these is through like drilling down into the ice sheet and bringing up these ice cores and seeing all the stuff that happened. Yeah, and you've 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 been up close and personal, maybe not necessarily with the drilling process, but like you've seen. Have you held ice cores? No, there... I never held one, but I went to the National Ice Core Lab, um, which is Where's outside that? Denver. Ooh. Um, actually, yeah. So I was I was out um, in the Denver Boulder area for for various things, and I was touring like a lot of different of the labs. Out out there because there's was so this, much science. Was this a work thing? No, it or? was. I was invited to go to NCAR, okay. which is like the... Anyway, so I was out there and I was my sister also happens to live out there. So I was staying there for a while. So I said, why not hit up all these places? Sure. So I got to go to all these cool places and one of them was the National Ice Core Lab. So I said, oh, I'm going to be in town. Can I come by? And they're like, sure, we have a tour group that you can join because like they're not going to just do a tour for like one person. But they do tours. Yes. Okay. So I was like, sure. So I go down there and it was a tour of like retirees <laughs> from somewhere in Colorado, <laughs> like a church group. And me, and me on the tour. Yeah, I could just... Um, but the guy who did it was amazing. Um, he was such a good... Because these are not necessarily science people. Sure. Um, he was really good at explaining it, including the question, well, is the climate really... Is there really climate change? Yeah, and yeah. the d- answer was definitively yes. Um, and we know from these ice cores. So, and then you get to actually go into the freezer where they keep the ice cores oh. and see them. Um, and my phone died because it's so cold. <laughs> but very cool. I took some pics. I can just I can just imagine you with like this group of retirees. You probably felt right at home. Did you tell them you have a minivan? No. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, so we're not um, talking about minivans, your minivan, your old person minivan. I could transport ice cores in there, maybe. Right, so ice cores. So what's what's today about? So today is about ice cores. Um, I talked to Robert Mulvaney, um, and he is a chemist who's also a engineer, and he is getting ready to drill a core out of 10,000 feet of ice to learn about the history of our planet's atmosphere. Um, they have this project. It's called Beyond Epica, Oldest Ice, mm. um, and their goal is to drill back to go back 1.5 million years ago. So like oh, wow. I said, so with the ice cores, you can actually go back and look at what past climate was like. So what happens is that as stuff in, there's stuff in the atmosphere, like a volcanic eruption, or there's different, like how how like the, you know, the chemicals in the air mm-hmm. are, and chemi- I don't know if that's, you know, but the, it, it's trapped in the ice, basically. Right. And then snow falls on top of it, makes these ice cores. Okay. So the scientists drill down into the ice, and then they can get, you know, go, you know looking back in time, they can see what all these things happen, and they can actually date things like in the ice. Like different layers, yeah, and okay. like we've talked about this before, scientists do this like coring is like a is like a thing, and mm-hmm. in, in geoscience, there's there's mud cores, there's sediment cores, you know the the way to go back and look at all these past climates. So, um, so when you want to learn and go back this far, they're hoping that this might be the farthest back that they can go. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I mean, or that, that not they can go, but that 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 scientists have gone with this with this ice core. So, all right. Yeah.
Okay, Dr. Robert Mulvaney from the British Antarctic Survey, where I'm a glaciologist or, or more specifically an ice core scientist. Okay, an ice core scientist. So what does an ice core scientist do? So ice core scientists drill ice cores in the polar regions, or in my case, in the polar regions, and then they try to reconstruct the climate and the atmosphere of the past. I've drilled cores in all over the place, but to me, the best places are, are Antarctica. And the reason I like Antarctica is that's where the oldest ice on Earth exists. So we can get the climate record from the ice, we can, we can get it from marine sediment records, for example. But the only place on Earth that you can access old air is locked in these deep ice cores, or locked in the deep ice um, in, in the polar regions, particularly Antarctica, because that's where the oldest ice is. So that's what we're trying to do. We're going to get back to this ice that hopefully is one and a half million years old. I went to university to, 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 to study as a chemist. Mm. My, my intention was I wanted to become a forensic chemist. Mm. And within a, a year or two of arriving at university, I saw on the lamppost a little poster that said, come along to this talk by the British Antarctic Survey. And I went along to this talk, and I was staggered. People are still working in Antarctica. They're still, if you like, exploring, but really it's a continent for science now. And that, I was staggered, and I thought, do you know what? That's what I really want to do. <laughs> forensic science, you know, I, I'll, I can still be a chemist, so underneath everything I'm still professionally a chemist, mm -hmm, and that's where mm -hmm. all the analytical chemistry comes right. from. But, but I just changed from forensic chemist, you know, looking at crime scenes and dead bodies, or I could go to Antarctica and try to, to, try to look at the climate. So I, I went to Antarctica. It's like the forensics of the Earth. It is the forensics <laughs> of the Earth, yeah, exactly. So I, I just, I just changed, you know, changed from bodies to the Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've just been in the field this year on um, a British Antarctic Survey and Cambridge University project, so it was just a joint two institutes involved, and we drilled all the way down to the bedrock, 561 metres down, hit the bed of the ice sheet, brought all that ice back. And that will give us a, a record of climate of, of about the past 150,000 years. Now, what excites me about that one is if we go back 120,000 years, we're back into the last interglacial. So the last time the climate was as warm as today, maybe a little bit warmer than today, six metres of more extra sea level. So sea level was about six metres, six, between six and nine metres higher than today. So what we were looking at there with that project is, is what was it about the, the West Antarctic ice sheet that may or may not have uh, contributed that extra sea, six metres of sea level? So that's one of the projects I'm involved with. Right. So that's you know, still 150,000 years, still a long climate record. But the other one I'm involved with at the moment, and the one that we've been particularly excited about today, is the oldest ice. It's called Beyond Epica, oldest ice core. <laughs> it's all there in the name, so the original Epica ice core was a, a big European project that finished back in 2004. I was there in the field on one of the drilling seasons and I was, did some of the analysis of the, that core. That give us, gave us an 800,000 year climate record. So 800,000 years of climate and 800,000 years of atmospheric composition. So we were able to relate what was in the atmosphere, particularly the greenhouse gases, to what the global climate looked like. And what we saw is that every, well, first, firstly, there's a very strong correspondence between atmospheric greenhouse gases and climate. You know, that's part of our natural global climate system. But we also saw that we, we have an ice age about every 100,000 years. But if we go back into marine sediment records and go back further in the past, then we can see that we have a, an ice age about every, every 41,000 years. Somewhere around about a million years ago, we swapped from that 41,000 year phasing to 100,000 year phasing. And this project, Oldest Ice, 
beyond Epica. It's the next project after Epica. It's the same, kind of the same grouping. Oldest ice is to go back beyond 800,000 years to hopefully 1.5 million years to see if we can see what the atmosphere was doing at this time when the, the, the long-term climate had a, a 41,000-year cycle between ice ages and warm periods. And so why is it important to know, you know, that, 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 that there was this change, you know, this from the 100,000 years to the 41,000 years? Why is it important to understand, go back that far and see, see all that? Well, okay, well, yeah. we, we, know that we, we know we're in a 100,000-year world at mm -hmm. the moment, and that is really being driven by the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit around the sun. If you go back beyond the million years, then it's 41,000 years, and that's being driven by the Earth's obliquity, the tilt angle towards the sun. So these orbits around the sun change the amount of energy the Earth receives, and that drives our long-term climate. But what we don't know, given that we don't think the Earth's orbit has changed for billions of years, what we don't know is why we switch from 41,000 year phasing to 100,000 year phasing. And I think, for me, the, the answer lies in the atmosphere. So I actually know about these cycles. Yeah. They're called Milankovitch cycles. John Malkovich cycles. Yes. <laughs> no, Milankovitch, right, Liza? Milankovitch. Milankovitch. <laughs> Hi, Liza. Hey, guys. <laughs> All right. So can you explain, uh, not necessarily the Milankovitch, but um, like more about these cycles? Yeah. So remember when we talked about the ice ages, the glaciation phases a few episodes ago? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like they... You have these periods when the ice sheets grow and then it, they shrink and it's balmy like it is now in between glacial periods and it's nice. And um, up until about a million years ago, those were happening on this 41,000-year cycle, like mm -hmm. he mentioned. And then for some reason, it became a 100,000-year cycle. Oh. And they're like, well, the orbit of the Earth didn't change and the tilt of the Earth didn't Because really those are the change. things that affect these yeah, cycles. Yeah, so like yeah. what happened? And so the, part of why they want this ice core going back 1.5 million years is so they can span that whole time. Uh. And then maybe he can see something in the atmosphere that might give us clues to why yes. this happened. This difference of 60,000 years is pretty significant. Yeah, it might matter. <laughs> might matter. Yeah, so they have to find like the perfect spot the to perfect go drill spot. this, thi this yeah. ice core. For the perfect core. That's real deep. That's Correct. a long time. That's real deep. <laughs> <laughs> no, like literally, but I'm just like, I could feel that too. Like it's the perfect thing. Real. All right, I'm done. So how do you find where you're going to drill? I mean, how do you know that that, it, like, that 1.5 million ice is there, you know? Well, most people <laughs> say, well, you know, you drill 3,270 meters at Epica. Why don't you just find somewhere a bit deeper? If it was as simple as that, we'd be able to find the <laughs> deepest spot in Antarctica and go and drill there. But it's not as simple as that because the, the bottom of the ice is melting over much of Antarctica. Much of Antarctica is underlain by lakes, and those lakes come from the basal ice melting. And it's melting because of geothermal heat flux. So the Earth being emitted by the Earth's mantle, it's trapped by the overlying layer of ice. And the thicker it is, it's like a big thick blanket, it just insulates the bottom of the ice, and the, and the, and the ice, bottom ice melts away. So at Epica, we only got 800,000 years because it's actually melting at the bottom. Mm. So there was no older ice. The deepest ice core ever drilled in Antarctica, a place called Vostok, is e even deeper still than Epica, 400 metres deeper, but only 440,000 years. Mm. But it's underlain by a huge lake, Lake Vostok. That is the old ice, if you like. That's where all the old ice is gone. It's now it's in the in lake. It's in the lake. Yeah. <laughs> so it's useless to us. You know, the gases have gone. The, you know, right. it, it, it's just useless to us. So what we've got to do is find somewhere where it's not too deep, 
not too shallow. We, need, we don't need it too shallow because, because we need as much ice as we can to give us the resolution of our climate record. We don't need it too deep because then we'll, we'll lose the, the, the bottom ice through melting. So we've got to find just the right spot. And people have modelled where just the right spot might be. And there's only a few places. So there's one near Dome C, which is the original Epica core. There's one near Dome F, where the, where the, 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 the Japanese drilled a core that went back at 750,000 years. There's one near Dome A, which is the highest, highest spot in Antarctica. So there's a few places that you might go to. And we've been looking for the last three years, again funded by the European Union, uh, for this spot that's somewhere close to, to the Epica core. Now, I've been in the field for two of the last three years, and my job was to drive around, towing radar around for a very detailed look at the bedrock. Um, I drove 2,500 kilometres at about 10 kilometres an hour. It's slow. <laughs> 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 it's, it's a lot of effort to, to get, but we've got, we, 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 we knew more or less where the area was. We had a, uh, an area we call Little Dome Sea. It's about 40 kilometres from, from Dome Sea itself, from where the Epica core was drilled. And we, 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 went, we did about 2,500 kilometres over two seasons, dragging the radar along the surface. And then we could reconstruct what the, the topography underneath the ice looked like, how thick it was, what it was there. From the radar? From the radar. But the thing we could also see in, in the radar is that once you've built up a, the topography of the bottom, it's like a, a plateau with deep incised um, channels in it. And at the bottom of those channels, those deep valleys, was water. Mm -hmm. So actually in that area, there is quite a lot of water. But on the areas that we are a little bit shallower, there appears to be no water at the bottom. So the other thing I was doing is drilling deep into the ice. I was drilling 400, between four and 500 metres, just drilling a borehole, not bringing an ice core out, mm -hmm. but just drilling a borehole. I, I brought the ice chippings out, so I was able to analyse those. But the thing I was really trying to get at is to be able to drill a hole deep enough to put in a, a, a very sensitive temperature measuring system that would give me a temperature every metre down the ice sheet. And with that and a few other bits of radar that allows us to understand how quickly the ice is flowing in a vertical direction, so how quickly it's compacting. With those two things together, we could predict the basal temperature and the geothermal heat flux, and that then allows us to, to be fairly confident that we haven't got melting at the bottom, and that's absolutely critical, because what we don't want to do is spend five years drilling a deep ice core and find, get to the bottom and find, oh, it's wet, it's, it's, it's melted. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> When they're down on the ice, I have never been. Have either of you been to Antarctica huh. on the ice? No. I don't. I, mean, I don't know. We're scientists. Like the people have done stranger things. Anyways, where? What does like camp look like for them, or where do they stay, or what are those conditions like? Yeah, because they're at this place actually called Dome C. Dome C. Okay. Um, which is this rise, right? Rise yeah, on, on they're the like Antarctic plateau. They're interior, like a thousand miles okay. from the coast on this big plateau on Antarctica. It's just the ice sheet. They're like 3,000 meters up. It's pretty high. And so these domes are kind of like a little rise, the highest points on this big plateau. But if mm. you're standing there, I think it doesn't really look like and you're on is, a hill. Sure. Yeah. And this is one of the places where there's like research stations. Yeah. So yeah. the French and Italians have a research station at this Dome Z or okay. Concordia research station. Um, but I think um, so the ice survey team was even farther afield, so they were they didn't even get to stay at the station, right? Oh. They're like in a remote, out. more remote area yeah. out by where they had to be doing their their yeah they were looking for where to drill. Basically. They're looking for where to drill. Yeah, yeah. where is the deepest place yeah. and where's the best spot? Okay, we were we were off station, so we're, there was in the first season there was five of us, in the second season six of us, so quite small quite small groups. We're living in a a converted container. 
So if you imagine a shipping container that somebody's put a few bunks in and a, and a, and a kitchen and, and, and a table, that's how we were living. And it was actually quite comfortable. You know, ordinarily, <laughs> when I work in a British project, I live in a tent. Oh, so you had a container this so time. So we had a container, yeah. 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 So it, 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 I've gone upmarket <laughs> a long way. Nice French and Italian food. It was, it was very, 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 very good. And what I would do is every morning we would we would fire up the, the big vehicle. So we were driving like snow tractors. They're, they're the things that would, would be used in a, a ski resort to, to piece bash the, the pieces. So we were driving around one of these, towing the, towing the little tiny radar behind us. Now, the radar looks tiny behind this big tractor because it's designed to be towed behind skidoos because yeah. that's the way the British work. It was, it was a British radar designed to be towed behind a skidoo, so it's kind of tiny, but this massive big tractor towing this little tiny radar. But we just drove up and down in a grid pattern, and then each evening I would work up all the data and then try and plot it in three dimensions. So as the, as the time went on, we were building a picture of the base and, saying, and actually being able to, in real time, every evening, look at what the area was developing like, what the base looked like, and try to say, well, tomorrow, let's go and have a look at this area over here, because that looks interesting, mm. and, get, and refine it. So mm -hmm. we were actually refining... As you were going along. As we were going along, and, and actually putting... Once we found areas that we were interested, we'd put more effort in those areas. So w because we were able to work up the data in real time, it meant I could, I could make decisions on the ground about what looks good. Oh, wow. And so how many weeks did that take in total? So I guess our, each, of the, each of those periods are probably out at the field site for about 40 days, something like oh, that. Wow. So, so oh, wow. So a reasonable yeah. length of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it takes quite a lot of effort to... I mean, you can't go... These areas are so cold that they're not long field seasons. Mm. So really, the field season starts about the beginning of December and is finished by the end of January. Beyond those periods, oh. it's just getting too cold. So to give you a feeling for it, the, the temperature, when I first arrived, we were getting... The morning temperature would be about minus 45. So I'd be getting Celsius, yes. <laughs> Minus 45 <laughs> Celsius. So I'd be getting up at that sort of temperature, walking about 400 meters to the to the to the to the station for my breakfast. You know, the 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 the, the, the cold catches in your throat, catches in your nose. It, it it does feel cold. Then by the middle of the season, the warmest days were about minus 25. So that's a warm day. <laughs> Did you wear like a t-shirt and I was well dressed. Yeah. <laughs> but to be honest, it's not really the temperature that, that does you in, it's the, it's the, it's the wind. And generally speaking, in these high altitude inland sites, there's not so much wind. When I work in the coastal or nearer coastal sites in, in the areas that Britain, Britain tends to work in, uh, we tend to get very high winds. So this last season that I've been working drilling this only 651 metre core, uh, we, got, we got winds of 40 or 50 knots, and actually that can be just very, you know, excruciatingly yeah. bad. So you're out there, um, I mean, in this particular thing, you said you weren't in the camp. I mean, you guys were out there so alone. We're not on the station. We're, we're mm -hmm. remote from the station. So the station's quite a, a comfortable year-round station mm -hmm. uh, run by the Italians and the French. Um, and it's very comfortable, it's designed, designed, designed for overwintering when the, the lowest temperature in winter might reach minus 80. So it's designed for those sorts of conditions. So it's a, a very comfortable station. But we were about 40 kilometers off the station, living in this container and doing all, all our work. So we, we, we would have left the station and then come back at the end of the season. So what's it like, I guess, to be out there? You know, I mean, even, I mean, you're doing your work during the day, you're probably busy, right? I mean, but, but at the end of the day and you're out there and you're, I don't know, to be out there in this place that few humans have been, um, you know, with five or six of you. And I mean, is it incredible? Is it, is it scary? Is it, you know? <laughs> it, it is incredible. Yeah. I, I, I think I've been to Antarctica now 24 times. Wow. 
and I don't tire of it. <laughs> to me, every, every season is different. Every season's got its new challenges, its new excitement. It's a, a new team each season normally, so it's, I get to meet different people. And I just, love that. I just love working in those sorts of conditions. I really like the remoteness. It can be very, very beautiful, extremely beautiful, especially when the sun's shining. It can be extremely beautiful when it's blowing a blizzard. It's, it's just a different type of beauty. I really like the the close-knit community that develops. I really like walk, working in these small groups of you know, just half a dozen people. It, it's just in, quite intense. You, you, you really get to know each other very well. You're quite reliant on each other. Um, you're certainly reliant on each other if, if anything goes wrong mm -hmm. because you know, it's a very small community. There's no instant access to, to, to medical care, for example, if, if things go really desperately wrong. So you really are quite reliant on the, on the people around you. And you know, every evening we all sit around, we chatter. I think with, a, with working with the Italians, we would sit around with a, a nice meal, a bottle of wine, <laughs> and we'd talk about the regional specialities of the, of the food that's on offer tonight. <laughs> Again, if I contra contrast to working in a British camp, it's like dried food every evening. <laughs> and it's like dried chicken tikka masala, dried chicken curry. Something else. <laughs> dried, yeah. dried chicken chili. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's more or less the, yeah. same, the same meal every, every night of the week, and dried. But the, the Italians really like to lay on decent food. They, they love their food in the field. And I enjoy that too. That sounds nice. That sounds nice. So, so, so what's next? So now you've, you've done the radar. You've mapped it out. You're like, this is where we're drilling. Okay, so we've, we've found the spot. So what will happen now is that they'll, they'll start to build a camp in the area. So it'll be a, a summer-only camp. And it's, they'll build a camp that's designed to, 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 to look after 14 people. And we'll be drilling... 16 hours a day at the beginning and the end of the season when it's cold, and then 24 hour days in the 24 hours a day in the middle of the season when it's warm. As in, <laughs> you know, it might reach minus 25. Right. <laughs> but it's you know they are cold conditions to stand around operating a drill. So we don't tend to drill all 24 hours a day at, at the beginning and end of the season. It's just way too cold. And how long does it take to do that drilling? And so pull up we're a core? going to take one season to set up and about three, perhaps four seasons to drill all the way through to the base, which is about 2,800 metres at the point that we've, we've chosen. So it'll take about three seasons of drilling. Just to get down there? Just to get down. Now, on a good day, you might drill 20 to 25 metres on a good day, and a good day being 16 hours. So that's about the rate that you drill at. And are you just standing there watching it, making sure nothing's going wrong? Like, what are you doing as this thing happens? Well, exactly. So, <laughs> so the drill itself is suspended from a cable. The cable carries the power down. It also carries information back from the drill, so we know what it's doing. And really, on the surface, all the only control you've got is to turn the, the drill on and off, maybe add a little bit extra power to the drill, maybe change the, the rate it's rotating at at the, at the head. And, and just monitor what's going on. So once the drill goes down the hole, it might take 20 to 30 minutes to transit the hole to get to the base. Then you set it drilling, it might take 15 to 20 minutes to drill two to three meters of ice, and then you bring it back to the surface with another 25 minutes transit time. Oh, because you're bringing back these chunks, exactly. these two to three so, meter chunks. Yeah, so because yeah. we're drilling quite deep, we've, we've built the wall, we're building the drill to, to bring about between three and four meters out each side each time it goes down the hole. We're not sure yet because the drill's not built, mm -hmm. but we are in that phase at the moment. But about three meters, say, each time it goes down the borehole. So that comes back to the surface. The, drill, the, the core is taken out of the drill, the drill is cleaned up, all the chippings removed, and then it goes back 
down the hole again. So as the, if you imagine when the drill comes to the surface, what happens then is it's, it's obviously vertical because it's just come up from the borehole. We actually tilt it to the horizontal mm. to make it easy to work on. Then the inner barrel, which contains the core, slides out. Behind that is all the chippings from the drilling itself. These are all cleaned out. The drill's cleaned up. The inner barrel's put back in again. And it goes back down the hole. And you pack up the ice core. Do you, are you doing any analyzing right there? So right, okay. So it, it, because we're we're off station, and because we're only limited to we're limited to only fourteen people in the field. Most of those will be drillers. There'll be two or three people that are whose job it is to just what we call log the core. So basically, just say right, you've got a piece of ice here. It's got breaks in these places. Any any physical damage to it will be recorded, and then they'll ch cut it into one meter sections and then box them. Then those are then transferred back to Concordia Station, where we'll do a little bit of work on them. We'll, we'll measure some electrical um, measurements on it, some non-destructive electrical measurements on the ice. But then the ice will be cut horizontally, so longitudinally, into half. Half of it will be then stored in the field for, as, a, as an archive, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, because it's cold in the field, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's so a natural <laughs> refrigerator. And the other half will be, will be packed into, into insulated boxes and brought back all the way to Europe. Now, we're going to try and bring most of it back at minus 20, but some of it we're going to try and bring back at minus 50, because some of the things that we want to measure deep in the ice actually might start to change very slightly if the temperature warms above minus 50, so we're going to try and bring it all the way back to Europe at minus 50. That's actually quite a challenge. He says it's it's a challenge. I mean, over, uh, sure, over like Antarctica or whatever, it's really cold down there, but we have, I don't know, negative 50 C is really cold, I get that, but what, like deep freezes and stuff, I don't... I guess I just I just don't see like can't you just buy equipment to keep things cold? Well, sure, but it's not like a normal thing. Like <laughs> yeah. you, you don't have a you don't have a negative fifty C. Plus, they have to transport it all the way from Antarctica. They're like a thousand miles from the coast, right? Something yeah. like that. All the way to the ship that goes to the tropics. I mean, to get it all the way back up to to where they are in Europe. So that's you know mm -hmm. with preserving it. Yeah, they just like pack it in one of those container things like you see on a container ship. Yeah. And hope it makes it in this refrigerated thing. But yeah, the, it sounds like the minus 50 Celsius is like kind of an expensive piece yeah. of equipment. And could you like That's imagine fair. opening that like when you get to Europe and you're like, oh, it's a pile of water. <laughs> that would be bad. That would be the saddest thing that ever happened. Ever. ever. Especially for someone who does this. Yes. <laughs> You know, what you don't want to get to do is have a freezer oh. breakdown in the tropics. And you get a puddle of water. Puddle of water. I, I've done this with my own, oh. my own projects in the past. I've, 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 you know, I've got it back to the station. There's been a breakdown of the reefer and I've got a puddle of water. What does that feel like when that, it, you it, open that it, up? It, it feels terrible. <laughs> and there really is nothing you can do about it at that stage. And of course, if you think about it, you know, if, this, if the ice has come from close to the bottom, it might have taken you two or three years to get there. So you just don't want to start all over again just because you've lost. So that supply line all the way back to Europe is, is quite critical to us. But it's also the reason why we leave half of it in the field, because at least then if there is a disaster, we've got the other half, the, lo the longitudinally, the other half of it right. is still in the field. Right, right, right. So then what? So once you get it back, um, back home, um, what do you what do you do in the lab with it? How, how do you analyze that? So it's, it'll be it'll be distributed amongst all the, the institutes that are involved. So some of it will be taken for gases. In a way, they're the most important thing we're trying to measure. They're they're probably the the whole key to the project is what was in the atmosphere one and a half million years ago. So you, you try to break it down without actually melting it. And then you take that air out and you put it into instruments to measure things like carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, the main greenhouse gases. The 
the thing, the, the way we get at the, the climate record is we look at the, the isotopic composition of the water molecules. So water is H2O. Mm -hmm. There are heavy and light isotopes of oxygen, heavy and light isotopes of hydrogen. And these vary, the, the ratio of the heavy to light isotope of each of the atoms varies with temperature because the, 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 heavier, the, the heavier isotope has a higher vapor pressure and therefore takes more energy to lift out the ocean maintaining the atmosphere. Mm, okay. So when you've got a lower temperature, you get le you know, less, of the, uh, less of the light isotope. So the colder the, the temperature, the more depleted the ice is. So what we're, what we're doing is we, we, we're taking that measurement um, and that will give us the temperature. So measure okay. a whole rain, range of chemical uh, parameters on the ice. So what we're trying to do is, is look at the atmosphere to know what was going on in the atmosphere. We're looking at the, the, the chemistry of the ice to understand a lot about the environment. And we're looking at the, the, the water isotopes and tells themselves to tell us about the, the climate. So we take those three together and we build up a picture of what the atmosphere, the local environment, or the, the long distance, around, you know, what, what's coming from the oceans, what's coming from the continents in terms of dust, and put that all together to understand how the climate, atmosphere, mm. And, ever, and the circulation of the, of, the, of, the, of the meteorological patterns around Antarctica, how they all come in together to give us this pattern that we see in the ice. Hopefully, yeah, so that 1.5 million years ago. So what was the Earth like 1.5 million years ago? I suspect it doesn't look that, that different to yeah. today. If you were in a warm, a warm period 1.5 million years ago, it probably looked very similar today. If you're in a cold period, it looked like a glacial period. And so this is going to help us figure out what's going on now, right, with our, with our climate. Well, that's part of it. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's, a fundamental, there's a fundamental desire, if you like, partly to, to go back and, and discover something new. Mm -hmm. What was the atmosphere like one and a half million years ago? But I think there's also a, a philosophical question that we are, we're asking of ourselves, and that is, if we don't understand why we've moved from a 41,000-year cycle to a 100,000-year cycle, and we don't, we're not, we've got some hypotheses, we need to test them, but fundamentally we don't know why it is we've, we've gone from that being locked into the tilt angle of the Earth's um, orbit to being locked into the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit. We don't know why we've changed that. And if we don't really understand that, you know, can we really honestly say we understand so much about the climate that we can predict the next 200 years? So part of it is, is philosophical. It's understanding the climate yeah. system as you know as a whole. Yeah. And part of it, of course, is if any you know what what we understand about the next hundred years and how the climate will react to increasing greenhouse gases, they are based on models. They are based on mathematical models that, if you like, they're forecasting the future. Now those models have to be seeded by some knowledge of how the atmosphere and the climate have reacted in the past, and that comes from our, our deep ice core record. So by understanding the climate of the past and the atmosphere of the past, we can help refine the models that predict the future. So there is a, you know, there is a link to what's happening to our future uh -huh, climate. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So are you, are you super excited to go back out? Yeah, so yeah. I, 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 <laughs> no, I, I'm quite proud of the fact that I was involved in the finding the site. I mean, I, yeah. I think if, if, if we drill to the bottom and we find oldest ice at the bottom, then I'm going to put my hand up and say, I chose that site. <laughs> if we get to the bottom and we find that the ice isn't old, I'm going to put my hand up and say, the committee chose the site. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's but but great. I, 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 also, I will all, I'm also looking forward to going back out and to be taking part in the drilling because, mm. you know, as well as doing radar, I, am, I, do, I, do, I do drilling as well. So I'm a, a, driller, a driller engineer as well as a, a scientist. So I, I, do, I, I try to cover all the bases and I'm quite looking forward to getting back out there and, and, and drilling the core itself. 
Yo, these scientists are hardcore. Yo, these scientists are. <laughs> no, they, they are hardcore. Um, no, we were talking about this before, and Liza brought up a good point that like they should have sent these guys to the asteroid in Armageddon. Like, you don't need right. You don't need Bruce Willis. And no. His- knucklehead friends. You need a scientist. <laughs> These scientists, scientists are like, yeah. you need Robert they know what they're doing. I'm going right. to send them to space to dig a hole in the asteroid and save all humanity. Yeah, yeah. To them go the glory. That's see, like That was the initial downfall of like science depiction in film, right? <laughs> <laughs> they were like nebbishy uh, <laughs> nerds, nerds yeah. just nerds. sitting there with our data. Not they that we don't do all. those they're things. Hard, yeah. Oh, sure. But they are hardcore. They're hardcore. You also camp on the ice for three years. Yeah. yeah like, I love cold, but no thank you. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Uh, I guess thanks to Nancy for bringing us this story. And th- extra special thanks to Liza yeah. for helping me with this story. Thanks, <laughs> And, Liza. of course, thanks to Robert for sharing his work with us. This podcast was produced by Liza. Uh, and thanks to our sound engineer, Carrie La Surrey. And we would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, of course. Please write a review. Give us some high-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. Yes, please. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcast and at thirdpodfromthesun.com. All right. Thanks all, and we'll see you next time. 